only a fortress. And Paul says, wait, can I please speak to the people? And we heard this from Gary last week as Paul relays the story of his conversion. And then at the end of this, he, um, oh, he explains that part of his mission is to give the word to the Gentiles. And then the crowd flares up once again at hearing this. And they're so angry at him that the Romans again have to drag him up into the barracks away from the people. And then the Roman tribune, who is the Jewish, uh, the Roman um, official in Jerusalem over the Jews, he wants to know what this is all about. He wants to know why the Jews are so angry at this man, Paul. So he's about to flog him to investigate this when he finds out that Paul is a Roman citizen and it's forbidden for a Roman citizen to get um, whipped in this way. So he has to look to other means to find out why Paul is being accused. And he goes to the Jewish council interrogation method. And this is what brings us to Acts 23. And throughout Acts 23, we learn three points about Paul. Firstly, Paul has genuine reverence for God's law. Secondly, Paul wisely communicates God's message. And thirdly, Paul is secured by God's providence. Let's begin in Acts 22 verse 30, which is the last one before, last verse before chapter 23. Um, so reading Acts 22 verse 30 through to Acts 23 verse 5. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that is the tribune, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So it all begins with this conflict between Paul and the high priest. You see, the chief priests and the Sadducees make up uh, probably the majority of this Sanhedrin council that Paul is before, and they want to get rid of Paul. They're sick of his preaching, they're sick of his popularity, and they're sick of this Gentile message. So when Paul says that his conscience is clean, the high priest commands that he be struck across the mouth. So at this stage, Paul doesn't know that Ananias is the high priest. You see, this meeting of the Sanhedrin was regularly held in the temple area. But because the Romans were bringing Paul to be tried, it probably wasn't in the temple this day, and it might have been outside the barracks. So therefore, the high priest wouldn't have been wearing the priestly garments like we see in the Old Testament, but he's probably wearing similar clothes to the rest of the council. Therefore, Paul did not know that this man was special. And after being struck, he comes back with this brilliant comeback. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And though it doesn't sound overly savage to us these days, it would have been very offensive to a member of the council. In today's terms, it might be saying like, you're a two-faced hypocrite. Because a whitewashed wall is an old, dirty, broken wall that has been painted over in white to make it look clean and beautiful. And with this comment, Paul is saying, 
that this man looks good on the outside, claiming to follow and enforce God's law, but underneath he is defiled, abusing God's law and his high position when he is outside of public view. For this reason, he is a hypocrite. And hypocrisy is a sin that was heavily addressed and condemned by Jesus. However, when Paul finds out that this man Ananias is the high priest, his attitude changes completely. As he says with the utmost reverence, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And this is a testament to Paul's sensitivity to the law of God. He has a strong desire to understand and obey God's law, especially this one of Exodus 22 that says, you shall not curse a ruler of your people. And it's an example to us as believers that even in the most trying, testing, and tempting of times, we are not to discard God's law. And why should we follow this law? Well, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There's a belief in Christianity today that's becoming uh, more popular called the hyper-grace movement. And the hyper-grace teachers teach that all sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven, so there is no need to confess or repent. That the only reason one would want to follow God's law is the earthly benefits that come about from doing so. They say that when God looks at us, He only sees holiness and righteousness, and we are neither bound by Jesus' teaching nor that of the Old Testament. They say that Jesus' teaching was pre-resurrection and therefore not for believers of today. And they say that believers are not responsible for their sin, and whoever says they are is a Pharisaic legalist. These people want to be able to sin without taking responsibility for that sin. They put themselves under teachers who teach them that it is okay to be comfortable with their sin. And these are the exact people that Christ was condemning on the Sermon on the Mount. Those who relax the commandments and teach others to do the same. My understanding of the scriptures differ from this. They actually have a low view of Jesus because they disregard his teaching and the law of God. John 1, sorry, 1 John 1 verse 7 to 8 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. And if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So how are we to walk in the light? How are we to follow the law of God such as Paul did? I've got two ways. Firstly, to understand and know the law of God. And secondly, to work towards God's example of holiness. Firstly, it is important to know the law. How are we supposed to do what God says if we don't know what he is telling us? And this knowledge comes through the reading and study of the Word of God, and it will help us and our conscience to align with God's Word. The Christian writer Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Practice of Godliness, stresses the importance of understanding God's Word. 
And three of these ways for understanding the word are listening to the word. That is, coming to church and hearing the word expounded. But I'm literally preaching to the converted here. The second is reading the word. Um, Reading and getting an overview of the entire scripture to understand the message in its fullness. And thirdly, studying the word, looking in depth at a passage or a topic to get a deep understanding of these points. And with this, we are to work towards God's example of holiness. The fancy term for this is progressive sanctification. And that's something that the hyper-grace movement does not recognize. But progressive sanctification is part of God's plan that we become more like him. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, says Romans 8.13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And some resources to help in this area of, for practically, sorry, to help practically in this area of sanctification, uh, these two books. Um, Firstly, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And this one has been very influential to me. And it's a book about um, understanding the holiness of God and then how we can therefore try and work to attain this. And the second is The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. And this is about putting to death areas of sin in your life that um, ensnare us and hold us back from our Christian walk. And if you'd like to borrow any of these books, then come and see me and I'll suss you out because they're so good. Um, So as we grow to become more like Christ, we can respond here like Paul does to the high priest with an understanding and sensitivity of God's law. And this brings us to our second point. Paul wisely communicates God's message. Paul wisely communicates God's message. So after Paul has responded to the authority of the high priest, things begin to heat up in the council meeting. So let's continue reading from Acts chapter 23, this time from verses 6 to 10. Acts 23 verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, remember he's before the council, he cried out to them in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And then the dissension became violent. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And another thing we see from Paul is this constant search for opportunities to witness to people about the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul knows his audience, he understands their beliefs, and he uses this to tailor his message with these details. Let me show you what I mean. What was one of the key theological differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The belief in resurrection. And what is one of the key similarities between the Pharisees and us Christians? The belief in resurrection. And this resurrection is why Paul identifies with them. Brothers, I am a Pharisee. He makes this appeal to show his former companions that he understands what they believe 
But he also has the rest of the story. So going back, Paul was raised a Pharisee. He grew up under the teachings of a well-known Pharisee and rabbi named Gamaliel, who was actually part of the Sanhedrin Council. Paul was well-trained in the doctrines of Judaism and had this immense understanding of the Old Testament from a Jewish perspective. But when Paul was visited by Jesus on the road to Damascus in chapter 9, he got this change of perspective. Then he goes and spends three years in Arabia reflecting and understanding and gaining a correct view of the Scriptures. The Scriptures that he thought he knew so well. And Gary commented last week that it's not Judaism over here and Christianity over here. It's two separate things. But that the Jewish people and their encounters with God are part of this progressive resurrection this progressive revelation climaxing in the cross. The church is a fulfillment of the scriptures, not something new and separate. And that fulfillment of the, is the message that Paul is witnessing here to the Pharisees of the council, telling them, oh, you believe in resurrection? I'll give you resurrection. The promised Messiah from our scriptures brought righteousness into the world, giving assurance of this by raising himself from the dead. And he's telling the Pharisees that they can have hope in this resurrection of this Jesus of Nazareth who was himself raised from the dead. And we've seen this specific personalized witnessing from Paul before, haven't we? Last year I spoke on Acts chapter 17 where Paul goes to the city of Athens. And he goes there with an understanding of Greek culture. He quotes Greek poets, and he takes this idea that the Greeks have of the unknown God and reveals to them that it's actually the God of the Scriptures, that he is powerful, mighty, and a creator. And as Paul does here, I once again encourage you to understand those who you are witnessing to. It's so encouraging to see ministries like Kennehy, who are serving and they're investing in the investing in understanding the group that they're witnessing to. Culture, customs, history, and through many of these pathways, they are able to relate the message of Christ's death and resurrection effectively. So as we read in the passage, as we read in the passage, it just so happened that these two opposing Jewish schools of theology, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, begin to go at each other, and they're arguing over these things, the resurrection angels' spirits. And it got so violent and heated that the Romans had to once again interfere and pull Paul out. And as we move through the narrative, we get to our third point. And that is that Paul is secured by God's providence. Paul is secured by God's providence. And I'll give you a quick definition of providence. Providence means that God is personally present at work in everything that happens even when he is not manifesting his presence by miracles. Providence providence means that God is personally present at work in everything that happens, even when he is not manifesting his presence by miracles. Let's continue reading through the passage once more. This time from verses 11 to 22. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that's Paul, and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, 
we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath not to taste food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is this that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So we see here the providence of God in discovering the theme, in discovering the theme. And not only through this passage, but through the whole book of Acts that we've read so far, we see the theme of God's providence shining through the pages. An example of this is when Philip the Evangelist was on his way to Gaza, and he comes across this Ethiopian man standing in his chariot, trying to interpret the scroll that he has of Isaiah chapter 53. And it's an opportunity for Philip to tell him the gospel, and right then and there he gets saved, and he asks if he can be baptized. Is this a coincidence? No, this is providence. Another example is the group of apostles. This is back in the early days of Acts. They've been arrested and they're before the Sanhedrin. They're before this council. And the members of the Sanhedrin want them killed. However, Paul's Pharisaic mentor, Gamaliel, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he stands up and says, if these men are not of God, then their cause will die out anyway. But if they are of God, then it's probably best for us not to interfere in the meantime. Now, Gamaliel wasn't a Christian, but God used this man's wisdom in the right place and time to protect his people. And we see this too in this account with Paul. But firstly, I'd add, I'll have to admit that the Jews taking an oath not to eat or drink was pretty dumb. I mean, they must have been very sure that when they approached the council that the council was going to say yes, considering they'd already made the oath. And then the council hadn't even talked to the Romans about approving this plan. But anyway, it does get very close to happening. However, Paul's nephew, probably a teenager or early 20s, was going for a stroll in the temple or marketplace when he hears the words Saul of Tarsus come up. So he stands by and listens, and he hears this whole plot of how the Jews are going to kill him. And this is providence. God putting people in the right place at the right time that his will can be done. And I'm not sure that this little scenario is exactly what happened with Paul's nephew, but it could be one similar. So the young man goes to the barracks and tells his uncle about this plan to kill him from the Jews, and this plan eventually ends up at the tribune that is the Roman official. 
And God had just told Paul the previous night to take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify to me in Rome, about me in Rome. And Paul, sorry, God was not about to have Paul killed, and therefore he was there to protect and to look after him through providence. So we also see the providence of God in preventing the scheme as we read the rest of the chapter. So reading from verse 23 to 35. Then he called two of the centurions, this is the tribune, and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against a man, I sent him to you at once, ordering these, his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And, they had come to, and when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he, learned that we, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So after the, Ro the Roman tribune was informed about the plot to kill Paul, he devised a bit of a plan. He grabbed 470 soldiers to make sure that they had outnumber any Jews or zealots they, that they encountered on the way. They had mounts, which was horses or mules, for some of the men and for the prisoner so that they could get away from Jerusalem ASAP. And they left at the third hour, that is 9pm, so that they covered the most dangerous territory in the dark. Are you trying to tell me that God's not looking after this guy? Come on, he's a prisoner. Yes, he's a Roman citizen, but 400 soldiers walking 50 kilometers to Antipatris and 50 kilometers back, and 70 horsemen going the full 100 kilometers to Caesarea and 100 kilometers back to look after this prisoner. God's protecting this man, just like he promised. And we see God looking over his, looking over his people all the time. Check this out from the book of Esther. So God has sent his disobedient nation, Israel, into exile. And many of these Jews were living in the kingdom of Persia. And the king's evil assistant, Haman, wanted to wipe out all the Jews because the certain Jew named Mordecai would not bow down to him. So he set a date on which all the Jews would be slaughtered and he had the edict signed by the king to set it in concrete. As well as this, he made these gallows to have, to have Mordecai the Jew hanged. So when this man Haman was approaching the king to ask if he could hang Mordecai, the king 
stopped him and said, wait, wait, I've got a question for you. What should be done for a very honorable man? And Haman, thinking that the king was asking about himself, said, I think that this man should be dressed in the finest robe with a crown on his head and led around on a horse and cart through the city with all the people praising him. And the king said, great. Can you please go and lead Mordecai around the city with a royal robe and a crown and all the people praising him? And you see, what had happened is that years before this, Mordecai had discovered a plot, that, uh, a plot to assassinate the king, and he'd let the king know and saved his life. But it just so happened that the night before Haman had approached the king to ask for Mordecai's death notice, the king wasn't able to sleep, I'm guessing by providence. So he asked if he could have some of the history of the empire read out to him. And this is where he was reminded about this man Mordecai who had found out the plot and saved his life but had never been rewarded for it. So when Haman was approaching the king to ask to have Mordecai killed, the king asked what could be done for an honourable man, that is Mordecai. And after Haman had to lead his enemy around the city with this royal robe and the crown on his head, he was furious. But he knew that there was still a notice signed that all the Jews were going to be killed anyway. But it just so happened that by providence, a few years earlier than that, Mordecai's cousin Esther had won this beauty competition and become the king's wife. And when Mordecai found out that the Jews were going to be killed, he told Esther, who in turn told the king that there was this evil man who wanted her and all her people to be killed. The king said, where is this man? I want to get him. And when it was revealed to be his assistant Haman, he had Haman arrested and hung on the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. And then this new law was signed that the Jews were allowed to protect themselves on this day when they were supposed to be slaughtered. And interestingly enough, the whole book of Esther does not mention God once. But it is so clear to see God personally present at work in everything that happens. That's providence. So do you think that God looks over your life with providence? You bet. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So our response to God's providence should be faith and trust. Faith that God is who he says he is, that he is sovereignly in control of everything, that even the things we cannot see and in the times where things appear to go badly, we are in the hands of this powerful God whose will always comes to pass. And trust, trust that he has our life in his hands, that he will work all things according to his purpose, that we don't need to rely on our own capabilities, but can look to him and his purposes in the hardships. We must trust that this powerful God, who claims he is holy, blameless, and good, really is who he says he is, so that we can submit to his purposes. What a blessing and comfort this is. So at the end of this chapter, Paul is in the supervision of Governor Felix, awaiting the arrival of his accusers, for, of his accusers from Jerusalem, knowing he is under the protection of God on his journey to Rome. Let's pray. Dear God, Thank you for your word that you have spoken to us today. Thank you for your servant Paul, whose life you changed to be so passionate for your word and for your law. 
I pray that you can make us passionate as this saint, as, make us as passionate as this saint in the pursuit of holiness and spread of the gospel. God, we thank you for your providence over our lives, that you are all powerful and all good, all good. I pray that we will submit to your will this week. We are so blessed, Lord. And in Jesus' name, amen.